Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Hello, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. You have Brian and Jeff along, and today we're going to be talking about the subject of authority. And you know, Jeff, one important question I think we would all or we really all should be asking when it comes to spiritual matters is, you know, what is the source of authority that we should be following from a spiritual perspective? And, you know, we just wrapped up a series not too long ago on the traditions of men versus the Word of God, and we saw many sources of authority uh, from these various religions that we looked at, didn't we? Yes, indeed, with sometimes coming from the Bible, but also coming from various you know, church meetings or councils or creed books that, you know, people have created, a lot of different sources, and even beyond that to some alleged supernatural, you know, ongoing sources, you know, like with uh, within Mormonism or other, you know, latter-day revelations. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting, you know, most, if you were to speak to people in these religions, teachers of these religions and so forth, I think that most would probably agree that, yes, the Bible must be our source of authority. But, you know, as we kind of said in that series, and we we really demonstrated from their own stated beliefs, oftentimes they will add to or take away from the Bible. They will pervert what the Bible teaches, or they will once again claim to follow the Bible. But yet when you dig into their individual teachings and creeds and statements of faith, it directly conflicts with the Bible. So that just causes confusion, you know. And so uh, I guess, Jeff, we could say that yeah, most religions that claim to follow the Bible probably do follow some of what the Bible teaches, you know, against murder and, and all sorts of things that, you know, we could all agree on as it relates to what the Bible teaches. But can you maybe start by talking about, you know, why there are so many spiritual beliefs if most of us religiously are using the Bible as our source of authority? Oh, well, yeah, that's a good question. And in many ways, you're right. There are a lot of different, uh, conflicting uh, spiritual beliefs out there. You know, countless thousands, you know, all different kinds of separate groups, all claiming to believe in God, believe in Jesus, but they seem to disagree (laughs) over just about everything. You know, to include even the nature of Jesus and of God, the authority of what some groups call apostolic succession and church councils. How to be saved, you know, organization of the church, work of the church, you know, personal morality, sexuality, you know, I mean, you name it, and there's differing views of what we should, you know, believe and practice from a religious perspective. And unfortunately, Brian, that's just exactly opposite to what Jesus prayed for on the night of his betrayal. In fact, can you go ahead and read, uh, let's see, John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Of course, contextually, Jesus is, this is the night he was betrayed, and Jesus is, you know, praying to the Father related to uh, his disciples. Yeah, real good passage when it talks about unity, right, and what it actually means. So here he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Right. Now, if you want to, Brian, skip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, where basically the Apostle Paul, 
you know, echoes the very same sentiment. Yeah, here he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. All right. Now, from there, how do we get to where we are today? I mean, again, literally thousands of different religious groups, figuratively on every street corner, teaching contradictory things, but all claiming to believe the Bible and to follow Jesus. Well, you know, obviously I can't speak for all of them, but uh, Brian, you know, based on my experience, I guess I do tend to see some factors, particularly reflected in the questions that we get to our website. Boil it all down, and it seems to well, kind of align with you know maybe two or three uh, major reasons. One is you know religious groups may downplay or de-emphasize the need for religious authority, you know justifying or um, the things they believe and practice based on some source of authority. So downplaying that, some groups may accept the Bible as a source of authority but not the source of authority. Uh, and maybe a third category of, yes, they believe in the Bible, Bible only, but mm, have not properly interpreted what the Bible says. Uh, for example, some people view tradition uh, as authoritative. You know, believing what my parents did or my grandparents did or what the church has done for a long time. How about clergy uh, as uh, the authority, uh, authoritative? You know, almost like, uh, you know, playing follow the leader, which, you know, we as kids, you know, sometimes might have done, of just accepting and doing what the priest or pastor or clergy or the church says to do uh, somewhat blindly. And, you know, the church is the authority, uh, source of authority. Uh, Man-made creeds, church councils. Uh, how about feelings and experiences as authority and appeal to, you know, well, I think it's true or I feel it's true. Or it doesn't matter what you believe, so long as you are, quote-unquote, honest and sincere. Uh, sometimes we see uh, differences based on failure to understand the distinction between the Old Testament, you know, the first part of the Bible, uh, with its law of Moses given to the Israelites, and the New Testament, or the second part of the Bible, uh, with the law of Christ given to Christians, including us. Uh, or sometimes failing to properly harmonize all that the Bible teaches on a particular subject, you know, taking one passage and running with it, but not really looking at other passages teaching the same, uh, on the same topic, and bringing them all together in a composite view to see what the Bible teaches. So, I don't know, Brian, how about, how about you? Why do you, why do you think we, you know, have all these different, you know, quote-unquote believers who can't seem to agree on anything? Yeah, I think if we boil it all down, it really does come to you know, a, a lack of knowledge or a lack of respect for what God's word teaches. And as you kind of touched on when it, you know, downplaying the need for authority. So certainly if you want to follow other doctrines, you almost have to believe that, or you don't understand once again, because of ignorance, for instance, about what the Bible teaches, that we must use God's Bible only as our source of authority. And so when you think about like people who belong to different religions, you know, that would agree, yes, there's a God, there's Jesus, he's the son of God, but they may not agree, for instance, if it's okay to use instruments in worship or that, you know, baptism is necessary for salvation. And if you think about it, it kind of goes back to what we said early on, and that is it's often due to the introduction of creeds or different, you know, teachings within their own religions, which add to or contradict what the Bible teaches. And if you think about it, 
that alone is going to cause differences because if what one religion teaches conflicts with the Bible, you have to choose one or the other. And of course, in many cases, the religions will say, well, you need to follow our creeds because we're explaining the Bible or, or things like that. And so, uh, you know, it just ultimately leads to division. And that's why if you look, for instance, at the Baptist church and how many different splinters there have been just in that one you know, denomination alone, it really kind of illustrates what happens when people have all these varying beliefs. Now, ultimately, of course, as we're saying, only the Bible, which is God's standard, can unify us from a spiritual perspective as we read, you know, in the two passages that we read. And so uh, we just have to understand that the differences come when we interject man's wisdom into the equation. So uh, I guess that's what we're saying, Jeff, right? First and foremost, it starts with saying God's word is the only authority, and I cannot accept teachings from creeds or other works of men, if you will. And then based on that, you know, learning how to properly study the Bible, properly interpret, harmonize passages, look at the context, uh, etc., that's right. And in fact, you know, when you think about this idea of authority, it is appropriate in all matters of life to ask somebody, why are you doing that? Like, what's your authority for what you do? In fact, you know, I was thinking, Jeff, about some old movies where you'd see somebody that's a, like a police officer and they'd say, stop in the name of the law, you know, something like that. Well, that's the authority that they're referencing. They have laws that as a police officer, they have the responsibility to enforce. And so they're letting that person know, I'm doing this by the authority of the law. And so we see that in society. And we'll talk more about that. But, you know, just from a spiritual perspective, over in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, Jesus was asked by the chief priests and elders of the people, they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And so, Jeff, would you agree that this is really an appropriate question for Jesus and even for someone to ask us today? Absolutely. And really, as we've said, it really kind of boils down to a couple of key aspects that we've been emphasizing so far in the podcast. And that is we need a legitimate source of authority. And as this passage points out, really, in the final analysis, there's really only two sources, potential sources. Only one of them is right, as Jesus goes on to point out in the passage you mentioned. Yeah, that's exactly right. And those two sources are from heaven or from men, right? And And certainly... You know, we going back to the point I was making just a second ago as it relates to being citizens of this country, we realize that there are laws, the authority, that we must all abide by. And if we break those laws, there are consequences. When we attend school, you know, we understand that there are standards to be followed to be prop properly educated. So we could not, let's say you're in college, you're working towards a degree, you don't have the right to dictate the terms of what is required to get that degree. Now, the college sets that's based on the standards that would educate you or to, I should say, reflect that you have been educated and certified, if you will, in that particular field of study. Or how about at work? We all understand that there are policies we must abide by to remain employed there. So if you were just to tell your employer, well, I'm just going to do what I want, I'm going to follow what I'd like to do, they'll fire you, right? So once again, it's easy for us to see this in civil society education and at work but for some reason people tend to struggle when it comes to spiritual matters that it's the same that there can only be one source of authority or else it will cause division and so forth so from a spiritual perspective we have to have this authority because it would also mean that if we didn't have it how could we be justly judged so think about it from these terms 
if we all can believe whatever we want, if we can all follow different standards, and that's okay, sometimes we call that unity and diversity, then how would it be possible for us to be justly judged? I mean, we would all end up being judged by different standards, and that's just confusion, right? That doesn't make any sense. Well, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, and 20, verse 21, only those who do the will of my Father in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. So that pretty much sums it up. In that whole section there, Jesus really emphasizes in obedience to what he taught from the Father that the Holy Spirit also revealed from the Father. So the Father is the single source of truth in all matters. Well, and that certainly makes sense as the uh, creator, uh, the supreme being, etc., with a view from the scriptures that have been revealed that there will come a time when we appear before him in judgment based on what we have and haven't done, have and haven't taught, you know, practiced, believed, etc. So, yeah, this, this concept of, of being able to, you know, trace what we've done legitimately back to what the scriptures teach uh, is a very important one. Now, as people might wonder, well, okay, how do you do that? You know, how do you go about uh, establishing you know, what the Bible teaches as an authoritative or an authorization for what we should proclaim, believe, practice, etc. And, and Brian, you know, smarter people than I have, you know, have kind of come up with, you know, in looking through the scriptures, generally speaking, three main methods or techniques that the scripture uses, you know, to communicate to us, you know, what we should and shouldn't do. Um, obviously, and, and, and we see this even within, uh, you know, modern society and families, you know, commands, you know, parents, as an example, you know, Johnny, do this, Johnny, don't do that, etc. You know, direct commands, express commands, however you want to phrase that. You know, we see that throughout the scriptures, uh, Acts 22, verse 16, uh, where Ananias basically uh, commands Saul of Tarsus, you know, now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. You know, here's a command, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, you know, Peter on the day of Pentecost, you know, commanding those who were present, you know, after the, you know, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's a command. Uh, similarly, Peter with Cornelius and the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, verse 48, commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So, you know, we can easily see from these relatively simple passages, uh, and, and several others, that sometimes God expressed his will or his authorization for us via commands. In this particular case, you know, commands to be baptized, which if you look at definition of words and context, immersed uh, in water for the remission of sins in the name or by the authority of the Lord. Again, example of a direct command that all should follow, commands. Uh, second general category or second general method. Sometimes we don't see the command, but we see people behaving in response to commands they were given. And their behavior is recorded for us within scripture. Sometimes we call these approved examples for apostles and the other Christians in the first century. You know, as we see them going about doing spiritual things, book of Acts, letters of Paul uh, and others to various uh, churches and individuals. You know, they give us insight into how God expects us to conduct uh, ourselves today. 
here's, for instance, uh, Apostle Paul, that he wrote to a letter he wrote to Corinth, uh, encouraged them to imitate or follow his example in serving the Lord, or as he served the Lord, or follow his example as he is appropriately uh, guided by the Holy Spirit to serve the Lord. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he said, imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. A uh, similar statement to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 9. The things which you learned, received, heard, and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So from this, we see that we can follow, you know, what Paul taught and practiced, you know, as an example, you know, from a scriptural perspective or spiritual perspective, because he was inspired and a faithful servant of the Lord. You know, we'll see several instances, like in the book of Acts where commands weren't recorded, but New Testament Christians in the way they, uh, for instance, you know, worshipped God, was recorded, approved example. Second method. Third method, sometimes called necessary inference, sometimes called forced conclusion. Um, but as you go through the scriptures, it's another way of establishing authority from what the scriptures say when you sort of take all the scriptures that are on a particular topic and, and see what they say again as a whole. Now, at least according to you know modern English uh, dictionary, uh, American Heritage Dictionary, this this concept of an inference is defined as quote the act or process of deriving logical conclusions from the premises known or assumed to be true. Uh, so you may see the word inference, but sometimes you may also see the word necessary inference. That means we really cannot reasonably come to any other conclusion based on the facts presented in the scriptures. Again, necessary inference or forced conclusion. You may hear those either of those terms. Uh, of course, Brian, it's important for us to realize that these things that are inferred, you know, are not spelled out directly, like in a command, like, like with parents, again, Johnny, go clean your room, as an example. You know, we have to draw a conclusion, you know, based on, you know, logical inferences, you know, again, uh, study from the scriptures. Uh, for for example, you know, if you go over to Matthew chapter uh, 22, you know, Jesus was responding to the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection and had this scenario, if you will, that I guess had stumped the Pharisees, the Pharisees couldn't answer it, that they decided to throw at Jesus. And Jesus was, you know, able to address it very, very nicely. Uh, if you go to Matthew 22, verse 31 and 32, he says, concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Interesting, he makes an argument based on the tense of a verb. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Present tense. I was? No, I am. I was and I still am. Hence, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob still existed, still living or existing in some realm, if you will. And of course, from Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 19 through 31, we understand the concept of uh, Hades, the, the afterlife, good and bad parts of Hades, etc. And that when we die, you know, our, our spirits separated from our bodies, you know, go to some kind of existence. And that in some ways we you know, live on in a sense of uh, consciousness. Again, an inference based on, in this particular case, the tense of a verb. 
interestingly. So Brian, again, direct commands, you know, following the uh, examples of, you know, approved uh, religious leaders written in the, uh, the New Testament, as well as, you know, logical, forced conclusion, necessary inference. Primarily, you know, three, three key methods that we can use to better understand what God expects from us. Brian, uh, any further thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes people have this misunderstanding that if the Bible wants us to do it, it'll say, thou shalt, right, do this, or thou shalt not do that, you know. Right. But as you were pointing out, we have examples, for instance, and as you were going through this, what popped in my mind was, you know, Acts chapter 4, you had mentioned there's a lot in Acts specifically with examples, and that's exactly right. So Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 popped in my mind where it talked about you know, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, right? So they had unity. Neither did anyone say that of the things that he possessed, he was his own, but they had all things in common. And we skip down now to verse 34, nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, verse 35, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. So, that's not a thou shalt give to those who are in need, right? But it's a good example of they saw there was a need from their brethren. They were willing to sell lands and houses and so forth and bring the proceeds to the apostles. It's a wonderful example of being generous and giving, one that we can certainly follow today. And then we have, you know, an inference where because they laid them at the apostles' feet and the apostles distributed to each one as anyone had need, well, we can certainly infer from that 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 was the appropriate method for getting goods or money or food or whatever was uh, given through the apostles because they would have had knowledge of who had need. Now, granted, we don't have apostles today, and as we study more in the scriptures, we see that you know you would go through an eldership at a local congregation who understands the needs of that congregation, and they can distribute what's needed to the congregation. So anyhow, there's just a lot of uh, you know, examples and once again, inferences that, as you mentioned, helps us to understand what should we do. And therefore, it's our authority. And it's not going to be, once again, just a thou shalt or thou shalt not. Well, and I've heard, you know, some people make a claim that, you know, this this concept of these, you know, three methods, commands, approved examples, necessary inferences, you know, sometimes you'll even see it abbreviated as C-E-N-I. That's, that's something that invented, you know, by quote unquote, you know, churches of Christ, right? You know, a modern sort of thing. But, you know, practically speaking, not only do we see it in scripture, we see it every day. You know, I mentioned regarding parents. Sometimes parents teach their children by direct command. Go clean your room, right? <laughs> Sometimes it's by example. Hey, let me show you how to clean your room, or let me show you how to mow the yard, right? Thirdly, sometimes the parent says, hey, Johnny, your room's a mess. Uh, yeah, okay, so what? <laughs> I mean, there's a necessary inference there, <laughs> right? <laughs> that you need to do something, <laughs> not just, yep, you, you know, you're right, it is a mess. <laughs> it goes beyond that. So, you know, even we use these techniques know, today in our modern society, it, it is not a modern invention. It's not something created out of thin air by, you know, churches of Christ, so to speak. We use them today and you know, we see them within, you know, New Testament times as well. So nothing new under the sun, so to speak. Yeah, that's a really good point, because if somebody wants to assert, well, there, there are other ways to establish authority. OK, what are those ways? And do they hold up to what the three that you just mentioned? And the answer is no. Right. 
Oh, and admittedly, I mean, you could, and I think you know, as we wrap up this podcast, we'll, we'll talk about the um, places in our website, uh, articles and podcasts about how to establish authority or how to properly study the Bible. Certainly, there are some techniques that involve, you know, looking at the definition of words or the context in which things are said or who's doing the speaking or the audience or the historical context, et cetera. But in terms of, you know, major methods, yeah, I don't know what else there would be beyond the three. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned, you know, we're going to point people back like we always do to the website. And I was just glancing at that section on authority this week because there's so much there. So I counted, it's like 30 different articles and questions that we have there on different nuances of authority that people have asked or that articles have been written on. So it is a subject that there's a lot of misunderstanding. In fact, let's go ahead and shift gears now and let's review some of the common questions that we either get to our website or even that people ask us when we study with them one-on-one about authority. And let's just kind of see what the Bible says. And so, Jeff, why don't we, uh, I'll turn over to you to ask the first question. We'll just kind of work through some of these common questions. Cool. So one common question is who, who decides? I mean, who decides what's right and wrong? I mean, who decides the standard for what's right and wrong? And it's definitely God, as you touched on earlier. I mean, he created us. He's given us his truth. It only makes sense to say that he has authority, not us. And we understand that in the world, people would say, well, I do, right? And in fact, if you do a little digging on methods and or, or practices as it relates to authority, you have things like moral relativism, which teaches that you and I decide what truth is. And we see a whole lot of that going on in society today with the redefinition of terms as to what hate is and what love is and all of these different terms. Well, God, fortunately for us, has been very clear about the fact that not only does he have all authority, which he has given to his son Jesus, according to Matthew chapter 28, but ultimately he's that source. And so in John chapter 12 and verses 48 through 50, Jesus talks about the standard that we will be judged by. So he says, beginning in verse 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word I've spoken will judge him in the last day. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. He goes on to say in verse 50, and I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So Jesus simply and faithfully conveyed the truth from the Father. In fact, the same applies to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says this in John chapter 16 and verse 13. He says, however, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. So, Jeff, it's really apparent from those two passages, right, that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are conveying the truth from the Father, who is the source of all truth. Yeah, good point. And in fact, in some ways, we hear that hear that challenge, if you will, authority. You know, who put you in charge? You know, you know what what makes you think you know you're you know you're not the boss of me, <laughs> etc. Yeah, we we hear that a lot today. Yeah, definitely with children, right? <laughs> like the older sister. Well, exactly. Well, and you know, I mentioned that earlier, you know, the, the parent-child relationship in many ways kind of mirrors the relationship between, you know, God and his children. Uh, and the techniques he uses, or the techniques parents use, 
uh, or that I maybe I should say the techniques that parents should use uh, in many ways mirror the, the techniques that he uses. Yeah, and it, you know, it's interesting. And, and another foundational question that we get a lot is why is authority so important? You know, and they're actually, in my mind, kind of saying, like, why can't we just do what we think's best? You know, maybe along those lines. True. And, you know, when, when people perhaps get introduced to Churches of Christ and the fact that we do emphasize authority, Bible study, proper Bible interpretation, uh, you know, rejecting anything that's, you know, can't cannot be substantiated by, you know, the, the scriptures, you know, people may go, whoa, that's that's kind of different. That's kind of uh, narrow, restrictive, uh, legalistic. But, you know, as we're seeing uh, in our podcast, it's what the Bible itself seems to require, seems to demand. In fact, earlier we mentioned Matthew 21, verse 23. Let's, let's kind of go back to that passage and revisit it. Verse 23, again, of Matthew 21. Now, when he, of course, this is Jesus, came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Of course, they may have, an, have had in mind, you know, themselves as authority or the Sanhedrin, you know, the Jewish council of the day. Uh, Certainly, they hadn't given Jesus, you know, any sort of authorization to, you know, go out and teach these things. Anyway, verse 24, Jesus answered and said to them, I also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. And so he asks him, verse 25, the baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? Now that puts him into a quandary. And they reason among themselves saying, well, if we say from heaven, in other words, from God, he'll say to us, well, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, meaning not from God, John made it up on his own, we fear the multitude for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, uh, we don't know. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Basically, they judge themselves as not being able to distinguish good authority from bad authority or being willing to admit it and being willing to obey it and comply with it. So Jesus says, you know, you're, you're not really qualified, so to speak. Bottom line, though, at least within this, the, the question you asked, they both, you know, both the Jews and Jesus recognize the importance of authority, you know, having a legitimate source for one's religious views. And as we've already mentioned before, there's really fundamentally only two sources, God in heaven or man-made. And of course, God, as we mentioned a few moments ago, you know, as the creator supreme being, you know, he certainly, Brian, has the right to require certain religious, spiritual laws, doctrines, etc., that we are to believe and obey. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, earlier, you know, John chapter 12, beginning with verse 48. How about this one? Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Now watch it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Oh, standard, good or bad. Hmm. The ability to distinguish in fact, probably one of the more challenging uh, statements made by Jesus. Brian, if you want to go ahead and read Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. Yeah, here it says, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Once again, two key sources, 
and the fact that you can you know mix in some uh, man-made doctrines and make your worship vain, pointless, etc. And it's bottom line, why do, why is it important for authority? Well, it's important to understand the will of God and make sure we believe it and practice it, because ultimately He's going to judge us against it. That's right. And the opposite is true. If we do not have authority, then what you end up with is division. And Jesus prayed, one of the final prayers he made to the Father before he was crucified was that he prayed, as we read earlier, that we might all be one, right? That we might be united in the truth that he brought to us. And so we just have to say, that's why authority is so important, because anything else that's introduced outside of what the scriptures teaches causes division, certainly not unity. All right. So the next question relates to one of the methods we mentioned earlier regarding examples. And you notice I threw in the word approved examples. And so people, I mean, there's a lot of examples in the scripture of people doing all kinds of things. How, Brian, can you tell when an example is really binding on us today? something we should follow? Yeah, it's a great question that people have, and, and it's not always easy to determine. And so there's kind of a few rules, if you will, that kind of help us in this area. And so as Jeff mentioned, you think about this word approved, this is just simply saying that we only want to follow godly examples and not examples of sin, for instance. So that one I know is probably kind of obvious. So one example, for instance, we know that Jesus established the Lord's Supper, and you can read one account of that over in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. So somebody reads that example of Scripture, and they say, okay, Jesus instituted this memorial that we might remember his death. Then when should I do that, right? When would I actually partake of it as Jesus requested? Now, some religions say, oh, once a month, once a year, whenever you want. But the Bible says no. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, we see an example that Christians assembled on the first day of the week to break bread, which is a reference to one of the two emblems that we partake of when we partake of the Lord's Supper. So as a result of that, we follow that same example today. And you can also go out and, you know, pair it with other passages like 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, where it talks about upon the first day of the week when you give, right, lay by in store, you give back to the Lord. So we can logically infer, as we were talking about earlier from that, that, well, they came together on the first day of the week to give. And Acts 20, verse 7 says they came together to break bread. So that's the day we do these things. We also can use a tool where we look at the example that's being given, and we can logically conclude that we do not need to follow an example if it's sort of incidental to the broader teaching or principle that's being discussed. So let's see what that looks like. So we see certainly with Jesus and, you know, the apostles and so forth, that they used examples. Jesus used parables, for instance, in Scripture to teach an important biblical principle, and the example itself may not be one that we must follow exactly. So think about like the parable of the sower. Jesus talks about the different types of soils, if you will, that accept the Word of God or reject the Word of God. Now, Jesus isn't saying, well, then we all need to go out and be farmers because I'm using this example of sowing the seed. We can see a similar example over in John chapter 13, verses 3 through 17, where Jesus wanted to teach his disciples a lesson by washing their feet. So we're not going to read that section, but make a note if you haven't read it or you'd like to refresh your memory. John chapter 13, verses 3 through 17. So Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, and we might just logically ask, all right, so does this example of washing the feet of others apply to us? In other words, 
should we do that today? And at first glance, it may seem obvious. Well, yeah, I mean, Jesus is washing feet. We should also. In fact, there are some that still hold to that belief today. But what we need to understand is that there's some other important factors to consider. So if you were to go back and you were to study the customs and the culture that Jesus lived in, you'll see that it was normal for the servants of someone's household to wash the feet of visitors. So if you came to my house and I had a servant, you had been walking out with your sandals, your feet are dirty, the servant would wash your feet. It was a very nice thing to do for visitors. But it was the servants that did that. It wasn't common for the homeowner to do so. So Jesus was teaching them that, you know, as a homeowner, they should wash the feet of the visitor as an example of something that they could do to demonstrate humility and willingness to serve others, because that's not something the homeowner would normally do. Now, if we today live in a culture, and there are some around the world that do still live in cultures where they walk around in sandals and feet are dirty, okay, great. That might be a wonderful thing for you to do to show how you can serve others. But like here in the United States, it's not necessarily part of our culture to have washed somebody's feet when they visit us. Like many of us don't have servants, number one. Number two, it's just not culturally something that we do. So then we would just say, all right, was this lesson simply about washing feet? No, no, it wasn't. It was really about humility and service to others. How do we know this? Well, going back to John 13, if you look in verse 12, Jesus asks his disciples, do you know what I've done to you? And then he answers the question in verse 15. He says, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And then going on to verse 14, he also tells them, if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So the washing of feet was what we might call incidental to the actual lesson Jesus was teaching. And just logically, we could say, well, then is the only thing we're to do to serve others is wash their feet. No, we can do lots of things to serve others. So I don't think anybody would say we are limited to only washing feet. But they also the opposite applies. It's not saying we must wash feet. It's just an example of service and doing something to demonstrate humility and willingness, if you will, to serve others. So Jeff, anyhow, that hopefully clarifies this idea of an approved example and maybe some methods we can use to help kind of figure that out. All right, and you know, as you pointed out, this is an area where it takes a little bit of uh, uh, depth, if you will, of research. Just because a person does something doesn't mean we should follow it. Just because an apostle does something doesn't mean we should necessarily follow it. Just because Jesus does something doesn't necessarily mean we should follow it. Again, you have to look at the context, intent, sometimes where you see it kind of repeated or within other scriptures that kind of bolster it. Again, coming back to the necessary inference, uh, sort of a logical uh, conclusion kind of thing that would uh, you know, guide us to the examples we should follow. Next common question we often get is, does the silence of the scriptures prohibit or permit? Yeah, and honestly, this is a really good question. I mean, you could say, yes, we believe in the Bible, you know, we follow the Bible, uh, etc., but recognizing, okay, given that, how do we use the Bible, particularly in areas that it doesn't address? Uh, and actually, this goes easily back to the days of the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther, you know, father of what we would later become Lutheranism, or the Lutheran Church, uh, certainly a key influence in the Protestant Reformation. You know, he took a couple different positions, but my understanding is eventually he settled on a position 
that said we could do whatever we wanted to do religiously so long as it was not prohibited by the scriptures. Uh, in other words, the silence of the scriptures on a particular practice permits, allows us to. If there's not a, you know, thou shalt not, then it's okay. You, you can go ahead and do it. One of his contemporaries, and admittedly lesser known contemporaries, was a person by the name of Ultrich Zwigli. Zwigli. I think he was from Sweden, if I remember right. Luther from Germany. He took the opposite position. Uh, he took the position that what isn't taught in the New Testament should be rejected. In other words, the silence of the scriptures really restricts or, or prohibits. Meaning, if I'm going to claim something, I have to find it in the scriptures where the scriptures talk to it. I can't say, well, you know, I think it might be good if we did this religiously or that religiously or this practice or, or this church organization or this name of the church or whatever. And, you know, I look through the scriptures and, well, there's there's nothing there that says I can't. So, okay, I'm, I, I can go ahead and do it. Well, again fundamental difference summarized between Luther and Zwigli. Here's the key discriminator, I think. What do the scriptures themselves say, if anything, about this distinction? You know, do the scriptures, you know, self-authorize, if you will, themselves, and how we should view things that are, the scriptures are silent about? Okay, a couple examples then. Leviticus chapter 10. Verse 1, we have the sons of Aaron going to offer uh, incense to the Lord. Specifically, uh, Leviticus 10, verse 1, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now, depending on your translation, you may have strange fire, or, as we said, profane fire, or unauthorized fire. English Standard Version and uh, NIV have unauthorized, meaning he didn't say, well, don't, do, no, don't take your fire from here, don't take it from there, don't take it from over there, don't take it from here, you know, not followed by a thou shalt not. No, they just picked it from some unauthorized source, and they died because of it. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14, interesting passage, for it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, the tribe of Judah, in terms of you know, physical birth, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. So the claim is Jesus is a priest, but at least if you go back into you know, the law of Moses, you know Moses said priests were from the tribe of Levi. And he didn't have to say, and not from the tribe of Simeon, and not from the tribe of Judah, and not from the tribe of Asher, etc. Moses spake nothing concerning the tribe of Judah being priesthood. Again, silence of the scriptures. Silence prohibits in those cases. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6? Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written so that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Or if you like, how about 2 John verse 9? Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So, key point, bottom line, scriptures teach us that we need to find within the pages of scripture, 
you know, authorization for what we do. And we're not allowed just to think up something and claim, well, the scriptures don't tell me not to. So it goes basically the scriptures, the science of the scriptures prohibits. There you go, Brian. Any comments? Yeah, can you imagine how many volumes the Bible would be if it literally had to prohibit everything that we couldn't do? Sure. I mean, it's just not logical to think. And so you're right. And in fact, we do see that in the religious world today because of that belief. There's all sorts of things that have been introduced in the name of good. Sure. Well, and, you know, going back for a few moments back to the analogy we have with parents. But, you know, sometimes I've used this in some of the classes with the teenagers at church. As a parent, you know, I'm going to send you to the store. Here's some money. I need you to pick up bread, eggs, and some milk. You come back with a bag of candy. You try to claim, well, you didn't tell me not to. And he, okay, let's say I do spend money. I bring back some bread. I bring back some eggs. I bring back some milk and a whole bunch of candy. Well, you didn't tell me not to buy candy. Now, would that fly? With Normally not. No necessary inference would tell you it's under stitching by the bag of candy. <laughs> exactly. And so, in, 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 you know, even there we recognize, you know, go to the store and buy the stuff. Don't go to the store and steal from the store. You know, don't go to the store and somewhere else and somewhere else. And eventually you come back home and the eggs are spoiled and the milk is spoiled because you were out in the hot sun. No, you know, go to the store and go get the stuff. Anyway, I mean, it's a natural, logical thing we use as parents. Well, evidently you know, the Bible is built on that same practical reasoning. Name applies spiritually. That's exactly right. All right. So you get a question. Uh, and, and there's a phraseology in here that sometimes people may encounter, particularly with members of the Church of Christ. What does it mean that we should have, quote, book, chapter, and verse, whatever we believe? Yeah, when this is said, it simply means that we should have scriptural authority for what we believe in practice. And so when somebody teaches, for instance, on spiritual matters, we would expect them to be able to support their teaching with specific passages or specific sections of scripture. And so, you know, this goes back to once again, saying the Bible is our only source of authority. Logically, then we would want them to be able to provide biblical reasons, if you will, for what they believe and are teaching. And so, you know, as listeners of a teacher or as readers of the Bible, you know, we have a responsibility to examine everything. And certainly when somebody's teaching, we have a responsibility to not just accept what the evangelist says or anybody else may be teaching, a Christian, for instance, but we need to make sure what they're teaching is from the Bible and that it properly harmonizes with other teaching in the Bible on the subject. And so a couple passages that make this clear, one is 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So a spirit, we all have spirits. So as somebody that's teaching, we have to test what they're teaching against God's word. We have an example of brethren from Berea, where it said that they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word. So in other words, they received what they were being taught with all readiness. So they were paying attention, if you will, and listening carefully. And then what did they do? It says in Acts 17, 11, they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So even when they were being taught by apostles and disciples, inspired men, they just didn't accept what they heard. They compared it to, in this case, the Old Testament. And so once again, the scriptures are inspired. Therefore, we must compare any teaching to what the scriptures teach. So Jeff, I think at a real base level, that's what book, chapter, and verse means when somebody says we need that for, for the teaching. Indeed.
And a very important uh, principle, just sort of summarized in a uh, very succinct phrase. Yeah, and you know, another area, Jeff, where we get common questions, and there can actually be some confusion with you were talking earlier about how we establish authority, direct command, approved example, necessary inference. And so sometimes people will be confused about what we call expedience. And so we get questions like, well, where's your authority for expedience if it's only those other three methods that you describe that establish authority? And indeed, it, it, it's a good topic. I mean, you, you could say, well, okay, you people from the Church of Christ, you know, what's your authority for a church building? You know, what's your authority for having songbooks? Well, you know, what's your authority for having a water fountain? You know, what's your authority for having a bathroom? What's your authority for you know, having, you know, a, opening announcements, you know, two songs, a prayer, a song, the Lord's Supper? You know, what's your authority to follow that with, you know, a song, uh, a sermon? You know, what's your authority? Right. If you claim you have to have authority for everything, you know, what's your authority? You know, what's what's the authority for the color of your carpet? Right. <laughs> I mean, you can just go on and on. Right. And so it's a little bit more nuanced. As you mentioned, sometimes we get into the discussion of expedience or sometimes we get into a discussion of specific commands versus more general commands. But let's start with expedience. And honestly, Brian, we, we need to kind of define that term carefully. Because I went out on the internet and I found that at least in common English usage, that term has a negative connotation. Here's what I found from one uh, online English dictionary looking at expedient as a noun, a thing. A means of obtaining an end, especially one that is convenient, but considered improper or immoral. Whoa, okay. Well... Let's first of all recognize that the word expedience, again, depending on your translation, is a Bible term. So let's go back to Bible, Bible dictionary, to understand how the term is used. And it's certainly not used in a sense that conveys something which is improper or immoral. For example, First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, Paul, again, writing to the Corinthians, says, you know, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. You go into a Bible dictionary, and you'll find that, you know, amongst the, the definitions of expedience or expediency can mean profitable, better, good, helpful, or, or, or something that aids. Now, what we have to immediately acknowledge, First Corinthians chapter 10, that these things first of all, have to be done in conjunction with something that is lawful or authorized before it can be considered helpful or a, a matter of judgment, a means or a way of carrying out what is lawful or authorized in, in an expedient way. So let me, let me toss out a, you know, a couple examples just to maybe help illustrate. Matthew chapter 20, verse 19 contains what is often called the Great Commission. You know, Jesus talking to his apostles. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. This is King James. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Okay, there is a command to go. Hmm. Well, we might say that's a kind of a general command without the specifics of going. So depending upon individual circumstances, I could go walking. Of course, in their days, riding a donkey, going on a ship. In our days, I could go via car, via 
you know, airplane. In some ways, we can even go virtually, like, you know, via podcasts, websites, email, etc. Again, general command, leaving the specifics of executing the command to matters of, of judgment, if you will. Same passage, teach all nations. Okay, well, in some ways, the teaching is kind of specific in that passage from the perspective of content what Jesus commands. You know, we're not supposed to go out and teach all nations uh, English, calculus, biology. No, we, as, as part of, within this religious context, we're to go, you know, teaching people to observe all things that Jesus has commanded us. Okay, fine. So it's a command that has a specific aspect. But there's some specific aspects that are not mentioned. They're sort of, again, left up to individual circumstances. You know, can we go as one person? Can we go as a pair? Can we go as a group? Uh, and teach, you know, can we teach an individual? Can we teach a group? Can we use visual aids? You know, all kinds of specifics that the command would authorize as quote unquote expedience. Again, same passage, you know, we're to go baptizing. You know, that's commanded, authorized by the passage. But, you know, again, there's some specific mechanics you know, about, you know, baptizing people. They're kind of left to individual circumstances. You know, you could baptize in a stream. You could baptize in a lake. You could baptize in a pool. That's, you know, expedience fulfilling the command to go baptize. Some people might say, okay, fine. You know, it's an expedient to go dribble some water on people or to pour some water on people. Well, no. Because if you look at baptism, the definition, how it's used, inherent in that command is the fact that it involves immersion. So, Sprinkling, pouring would not be an expedient. It would be something else, different. And again, not authorized. Oh, there you go. Expedience, kind of a, a more um, interesting, more in-depth kind of thing. Again, connected to, to commands and the formation of the command as being, you know, does it, is a general command, is a specific command, does it have some general parts and some specific parts and being able to distinguish between the two and what is allowed as an aid versus what might be viewed as an addition, doing something different. Brian, back to you for any uh, thoughts on that. Very well explained. And I like the examples you gave because I think it does clearly say this is what we're talking about, right? When we talk about expedience. So yeah, thank you for that. Okay, so you get the next question. Uh, what does it mean in 1 Peter 4, verse 11, quote, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. It means it's based on what God has spoken. And so if you look at the Greek word oracles, it means an utterance, which is how the New American Standard, for instance, translates it. And so if you look at the NIV, I think it actually helps to clarify it even further. It says, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. So I feel like that kind of helps us to understand the thought here. When we speak, when we teach, we should have the attitude that we're, we're speaking the very words of God as, of course, revealed to us in the New Testament. So kind of goes back to what we've been saying all along about authority in this podcast, and that is, you know, we need to have authority for what we say and teach on spiritual matters. Our opinions and our thoughts have no authority, only what God teaches us through his word. So that one's pretty straightforward. <laughs> right. Well, and, you know, that's something that we, I think we emphasize almost on every podcast. We're kind of here on people's computers, on people's phones. We're talking about this, talking about that. And we try to emphasize that, you know, don't believe us 
actually, let me say that different. Don't believe us. <laughs> actually do proper investigative study. I mean, you'll consider what we say. Go to the website, which Brian will point us to in, in a few moments. Consider what the website says, you know, articles, other podcasts, etc. But really look at the scriptures that might be cited. Open your Bibles, dig into the Bible, and see if what we're saying is consistent with what the Bible really teaches. Because after all, you're not going to be judged based on what Brian and Jeff say. You're going to be judged based on what God says. And hence the need to establish proper authority for what we believe and practice. Brian, I think we got uh, one more question, right? Yeah, one final question. And this is one I've heard, uh, and this is a good one, I think. It's uh, people, you know, like to turn to Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19 as proof that we should not adhere to creeds or doctrines from other religions. So they'll say that, hey, you know, you're, you're citing as your authority to not use the creeds and religions by referring to Revelation 22, 18 and 19. But then they'll say, isn't it true that this is simply talking about adding to the book of Revelation? I'm, and Jeff, I've kind of heard this also with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where, you know, it's all scriptures given by inspiration of God. And they say, well, all scripture there based on context is referring to the Old Testament. So how can you say that about the New Testament? Well, similar thoughts here, right? But uh, anyhow, this is just one argument people try to make to say that they can add to God's word or take away. Sure. And of course, like we always like to do, let's go back to the Bible. Let's go to the passage. See what it says. Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 through 18 and 19. I testify, and of course, this is John, um, you're writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So, for starters, we have to acknowledge and admit clearly in this context, John is referring to the words of the prophecy of this book, a.k.a. the book of Revelation. Okay, So that's, that's pretty clear. Not pretty clear. It is clear. <laughs> now, I might make a really quick side comment. That's why, when approaching the book of Revelation, we have to be very, very careful to limit ourselves to what is clearly taught within the book of Revelation. Given how highly symbolic the language is, people have spun all kinds of interpretations over the centuries as to what these things are or will be, to include setting specific dates for Jesus' return. When he clearly says that no one knows that, uh, only God, in Matthew 24, verse 36. So let us not add our think-sos and our speculations to the book of Revelation and come up with all kinds of interesting, highly fascinating, emotional kinds of things, you know, related to the rapture and related to the tribulation and the mark of the beast and 666 and the Antichrist, etc. So... As a side comment, again, just be careful. So coming back to the original question, Revelation 22, 18, 19. Is it related to the book of Revelation specifically? Yes. Now, having said that, as a general principle, that concept applies to all of God's scripture. I mean, all the verses we've been talking about throughout the podcasts, 
talk about the dangers of mixing the doctrines of men in with what the Word of God has to say, how our worship can be vain when we adopt the doctrines of men as part of our religious beliefs and practices, that it's God's Word, Jesus, you know, words of Jesus, commands of Jesus, etc., that will judge us in the final day that we can have this mixture of what God wants us to do and what we want to do and be declared as unrighteous, you know, doing that which is wrong. In fact, what John says in Revelation 22 is kind of echoed elsewhere. So now we have a consistent story. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6 comes to mind. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So... Quick answer to the question is, yes, Revelation 22 does indeed apply to what John wrote, the words of the book of this prophecy. But as a general principle, it applies for all of God's inspired revelation in the Bible, in the New Testament. Brian, how about that? Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, you know, God has always had the requirement that we follow only his word and that we not add to or take away. And so, you know, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2, after that law was given, God said, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. Okay, we understand that that clearly was the old law, but God has always once again established this. We know that because we talked earlier about in the New Testament, whoever goes onward and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have Christ. So you can't go on, you can't add to and so there are just many passages that says throughout time, both covenants, God has always expected us to keep his word and never add to or take away. So it's just consistently found throughout the scriptures. Right. Well, and it's that consistency that, that I think allows people to cite Revelation 22 and say, aha, see, here, here are the messages yet again, right, about the book of Revelation. You know, Brian, it may be a little bit of a subtle point, but I'll just kind of toss it out there. Sometimes people can make a claim in Scripture, or a, a claim from Scripture, that really is correct, according to, you know, the Bible, using the wrong verse, <laughs> right? So they may be teaching the truth, but using the wrong verse to teach it, because it is taught elsewhere. Right. Or it may be a verse applies you have to make kind of a, a logical step or a logical connection. Just, just real quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul is instructing the Corinthians on the first day of the week, they should, you know, set aside some funds. So when he comes through town, the needy saints in Judea, the, that it's ready. And we use that to authorize, you know, Lord's treasury, first day of the week, etc. And yet it was for a limited purpose or a specific purpose, I should say, in 1 Corinthians 16. And yet we see as a general principle, and use that as a general principle, and, and can apply it to any sort of authorized work in the local congregation that needs to be funded. Like we mentioned earlier, you know, a building to meet, song books, supporting the preacher financially, etc. So I, again, have to make the connection, in some cases, with some verses to the topic that you're discussing regarding authority. Yeah, good points. And, you know, this, hopefully this entire podcast, we've been able to impress upon our listeners the importance of authority, 
how the Bible must be our only source of authority, and how we just need to make sure, like you were saying, that we're not making modifications based on what we think makes sense or based on the creeds of men or whatever. We just don't have that right. And so it's about respecting God's word and only following he who knows best, right? What he wants us to do and not our own self. Exactly. We'll wrap this up by saying, hey, there are many topics that we discussed and we're, you know, our website has a lot of information. As I mentioned earlier, if you go under the you know, section on authority, almost 30 articles and questions that have been answered about that. B for Bible study, almost 40 articles and questions that have been submitted that have been answered on that subject. C for controversy, 10 articles there. And then Unity, about 12 articles on that. So as you can see, some of these are subjects that, once again, people have questions about, and rightly so, and we're always happy to answer those. In fact, if you go to those sections and you don't see a question that you have answered there, feel free to use the Ask a Question button on our homepage. And Jeff, who administers that, will assign it to one of our men that answer their question. And within a couple of days, you're going to get a scriptural response to your question. We also have a, a lessons section on our website, and under that section, there is a, a segment called How to Study, and you can look for some teaching and study, for instance, a correspondence course on interpreting the Bible, and it's a multi-part correspondence course that you can take for free, where you read the material, you answer some questions, you submit it, and then the uh, answers are provided or, or verified, and and then uh, you're sent a link back for the next lesson. So I encourage you to do that. And then there's also a section on effective Bible study. So we'll wrap up our podcast first by thanking you for listening and also by encouraging you to take to heart what you've heard, like the Bereans, look at what we've said, make sure that it is consistent with Scripture, and do everything you can to apply it to your life. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.